Thank you very much, Nate. When I said make his questions, his response was after seeing those questions, I don't know if I'm an evangelist or not. <laughs> so take what I said with a grain of salt. <laughs> it's a good, good exercise for all of us. And uh, we're going to take uh, some time for some, some questions, beginning, please, with Brother Richard Bunner. I don't need the mic. I just want to hear number five answer. Okay. Is an evangelist ordination once for life, or does it end if the congregation who originally ordained him is no longer faithful, or if the individuals who ordained him are all dead and unfaithful? Let me get to my notes in that. And then, let me bear with me while I kill time so I get less questions and also get to, get to my slide. I feel this question is a matter of practicality versus formality. What I mean by that is in the New Testament, appointing evangelists seem to be more practical than formal. In one sense... A man is an evangelist if he evangelizes. Again, I don't know if Philip was appointed or not, but he evangelized and he, and he worked. He was recognized as uh, an evangelist. And an evangelist's recognition really should be more of his message and his work than by his appointment. Again, Philip's influence came from his preaching. Um, Paul and Barnabas' influence in their message on their first missionary journey, their authority did not come from the fact that Antioch appointed him, but from the fact that they were preaching the gospel. Timothy's influence in Ephesus wasn't about the laying on of hands. It was about his example, his faithfulness. And so the question to get around to is, is the man faithfully preaching the gospel? Whatever work group he's working with, are they confident in his working? Are, are, do they trust that his work is the work of an evangelist? And if so, maybe his appointment his official appointment ordination was years ago by another congregation, if he's with a congregation that recognizes he is faithfully laboring as an evangelist, then he's an evangelist. Um, I'll use myself as an example, and I guess if I'm wrong on this, you can tell me I'm not an evangelist. Um, I didn't want to put in a bunch of anecdotal examples because all of us could come up with our own. Uh, I was appointed in my early 20s by a fairly new congregation um, they, didn't, they weren't able to support me full-time. I cut back some hours at work. They supported me a, a little bit, and I tried to work extra with the congregation. That congregation doesn't even exist anymore today. For a while, I lived in Ozark where I had a full-time secular job. I would be the first to tell you I functioned more along the lines of a congregational teacher than I did as an evangelist. I did some evangelistic things and some works here and there. But primarily, I helped the congregation in Ozark, Missouri in that capacity. Then I was invited, I was asked to come out to the Springer Road congregation to become there to work with them and labor with them as an evangelist. And to this day, that's where I'm at. Um, I think I'm getting a paycheck next month from them, as far as I know, so they continue to support me. Um, they recognize me. Now, I'll say this. When I went to Springer Road, we did not have, they did not ordain me as an evangelist. Now, does that mean I need to stop working as an evangelist? I think that they recognize me. The fact that they called me out and asked me and continue to work with me, they have appointed me to the task of evangelism. 
even though a congregation that officially ordained me years ago doesn't even exist anymore. Now, the other side of that is just because a man is appointed or ordained doesn't mean that he's always an evangelist. If he begins to teach or preach something that's inaccurate and wrong, whether his ordination is revoked, if that's even a possibility, doesn't matter. He shouldn't be listened to. He should be rebuked and he should be corrected. And if he won't be corrected, he should not be heeded. He should be withdrawn from if he's going to teach false doctrine. Appointment or no appointment. So if, again, it comes back to if, if appointing a man uh, invests authority, then that's a big deal. But if it doesn't invest authority, then whether that congregation is faithful or not, whether they're dead or not, whether they exist or not, doesn't really have much of a bearing on what he's doing now. And if he's doing the work of an evangelist, and if he's recognized as doing the work of an evangelist, then he's an evangelist. On the other hand, if he's not doing the work of an evangelist, he's not an evangelist. Appointment or no. So that's how I would answer this question. If he's doing the work, and he's recognized for doing the work, sometimes that will be a lifetime. Sometimes that will not. Again, there's flexibility. Really appreciate it, um, particularly seeing as about oh, 75% of us here have a very personal stake in, <laughs> in the topic. Um, uh, I forget which number of question it was, but it had to do with, uh, with eldership and whether a congregation needed to have eldership in order to uh, ordain uh, an evangelist. And, of course, we see evangelists ordaining elders, and sometimes I've heard, and perhaps others have too, where um, it kind of works vice versa. Uh, evangelists ordain elders, elders ordain evangelists. Do you think that's... Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Um, so when it comes to the maturity of the congregation, as far as elders ordaining an evangelist, the only example we actually have is the potential example of the elders that laid hands on Timothy. And as I explained, we have to be careful about pressing that too far. Um, this is something that occurred to me as I've been thinking over these notes again and again and again. It's very interesting. In the New Testament, you have every role of Ephesians 4 verse 11, partaking and laying on of hands and appointing at some point. The apostles appointed the, uh, the seven in Acts chapter 6. In Acts 13, it's prophets and teachers. Now, you might say, well, prophets can replace elders. I don't know. But you have prophets and teachers. Elders aren't mentioned. Prophets and teachers are who send out Barnabas and Saul. Now, again, as I said, that was the Holy Spirit, but they laid hands on Barnabas and Saul. So now you have apostles, prophets, teachers. Um, you have Titus is told to appoint elders. And so, and then perhaps, again, how you interpret 1 Timothy 5, where they're laying out of hands there is removing elders or appointing elders. You may have that example there. And so what you end up having is you have, um, you have evangelists, you have teachers, you have prophets, you have apostles, uh, and you have elders all in some way appointing some function of the church. So what does that mean? Is that just a bunch of confusion? I think it's the flexible role of the church leadership 
is able to select a qualified man to a need. So if a congregation doesn't have elders, but they see the need for a man to work with them, to develop elders, to evangelize their area, the men who have some form of, of leadership capability can make that choice. They don't have to have elders, I believe, to be able to appoint a man to do a work. If they have any form of leadership at all, they have the ability to make that selection. I enjoyed that, Nate. And we talked about this a little bit last night. I think you're on the right track here. I don't think ordaining a person um, makes him a preacher or not. I mean, Paul had been preaching and had been an apostle for 14 years before they sent him out from Antioch. But it seems like the purpose of ordination, in, I think this would be accurate uh, of all the cases, is to identify a man or something to a certain purpose or work. And the church at, at Antioch was instructed to ordain or appoint Barnabas and Saul and send them out on this missionary journey, which meant that the church in Antioch was taking responsibility for them and that they were answerable to the church at Antioch and they had a working relationship, in other words, with these two men. And they, they were telling the congregation, these are our guys that we're sending out. We're going to take care of them. They're going to do this work. And I think if we look at the work at ordination like that, uh, I don't think it is necessarily a lifelong work. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a different kettle of fish. But I don't know where the scripture is that says an elder's work is a lifelong work either, by the way. That's one of next year's topics. Yeah. But uh, I think there is an example I mentioned to you the other night. In, in Acts 15, Judas and Silas were appointed or ordained to accompany the letter and Paul and Barnabas back to, to Antioch and... Uh, preach along the way about the decision of the church. Paul and Barnabas were right about what they were saying about the Judaizers and so on. And when they got back to Antioch, they were with the church for some time, and then the church sent them back. Justice went back, but Silas remained there and ultimately went with Paul on the second missionary journey. But I think the sending them back in, indicated the end of their their appointed function from the church at Jerusalem. It had been satisfied, the work had been done, they were released mm -hmm. from that work. Now I've been ordained twice myself. We're gonna do anecdotal stories, but I don't have any relationship now other than a common Christian relationship with the church at Bunners Ridge, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. I still know the people, they're still faithful, I still love them. Uh, maybe they love me, uh, but I don't have a working relation with them and haven't had for 30 some odd years. Uh, the fact that they ordain me really is meaningless, but I do have a working relationship with Lodi and they did ordain me and I still have a working relationship with them. So the relationship might be lifelong or long, but it's not necessarily that. It's 
being appointed to a work, and when the work is over, it's over. Yeah. I agree with that. And uh, if you don't want to re-listen to 45, I was supposed to talk for 45 minutes. There's your short answer uh, to re-watch. I agree with all of that. Okay, Nate, I appreciate all you've said and everything. Now, in regard to how you answered question number five, uh, my, my question is, what is the responsibility of the congregation after they ordain the man? What authority do they have is what I'm saying uh, while he is still under their ordination? So that's a really interesting question because in some ways it, I think it still comes back to practicality um, because from a from what we can read and witness, and of course, in the New Testament, we have apostles. So Timothy's never sent out by a congregation. He's always sent out by an apostle. So we don't, I don't feel like we have a lot of examples that can really say what authority, and I guess we can discuss what we mean by authority, we have. I think we have, like Alan said, we have a working relationship. Now right now, the congregation at Springer Road has entrusted me to work as an evangelist. Now, if I begin doing something or saying something that they do not feel is appropriate or right, then they have every right to say, either change this behavior or this teaching, or you're not going to work with us anymore. They have the right to say, we're not going to financially support you to do this anymore. Um, I'm a little hesitant to just tie money to authority, but if a congregation doesn't want to, you know, if, if, if they don't want me to travel overseas, they don't have to pay my way to go overseas. And so it, it, it's that working relationship. And it's like any relationship in the church in some ways. If I begin doing something wrong, then they have every right to say, we aren't going to go along with this anymore. We're not going to support you. You need to change your behavior. But even if I'm not an ordained evangelist and I begin teaching false doctrine, they have the responsibility to do the same thing. Change your doctrine, change your behavior, or else we have to cut ties of fellowship. So I guess I, I don't see a real formal situation there. Now, and if it becomes a situation of they can't support me financially, or they're just tired of me, you know, they have that, they can make those choices. And then a preacher has to make the choice, am I going to continue to preach even though I have to get a secular job? Am I going to continue to be a good congregational teacher even though they don't have a task for me to do as an evangelist? Um, the man needs to make that choice. So I, hope, I don't mean to circle the question. I just There's not a lot of specific... We don't have a, a book, chapter, and verse of here's what authority a congregation has over a man. If they've got a need for him to do, they select him to do the work. If he's doing the work, they support him in that. If he's not doing the work, they stop supporting him in that. Um, I think their authority is also the word. Did you stand up? Oh, man. First, I thought Ron was consulting with Alan, and I thought that can't be a good thing for me. Nate, this is just a general comment. I think helps give a framework for people when they want to study laying on of hands in the Bible. I think laying on of hands in the Bible when you study it will come under two categories. 
either impartation or identification. I just, I, I've always found that helpful. You got all these laying on of hands thing. They will come under those two categories, impartation or identification. For example, in Timothy, with the elders and their relationship with Timothy, that, that is a reference to identification and not impartation. And I think the original words would bear that out. And Acts 13 would show this, what? They laid their hands to identify. Mm -hmm. Impartation, of course, we think of laying on of hands in terms of spiritual gifts. But those two categories, I think, are helpful for people when they're trying to grasp laying on of hands. And impartation, identification, also helps us a little bit with some of the details of the things we were just speaking about. Thank you. I think that's very helpful. Thank you, brother. I, when I th think about some of these things, my question is kind of similar to Brother Richard's. Seems like there's a lot of communicating expectations between the preacher and the congregation on what is our relationship together. And when those aren't communicated well, there can be a whole lot of assumptions about one's role or what the expectations are of your evangelist. And then people are getting bitter because they weren't communicated. So mine's more of a, just a wisdom question. I know this is not maybe from the scriptures, but is there any wisdom in a written contract between the church and its preacher on expectation roles, length of service, etc.? Um, and this is for you and, I guess, preachers in the audience, because I enjoy hearing the, the different ways that churches have interacted with evangelists. And I've heard it from uh, one preacher has the role until, uh, quote, the elders said, until you preach my funeral. You know, it's just this open-ended commitment. Mm -hmm. And then others I've heard of that have said it's an every two-year arrangement and then we'll consider reviewing at two years. What are your thoughts on maybe the business side of the relationship? I don't know if I can give a real satisfactory answer because it, it is kind of just a wisdom and situational choice. Um, so I can again, I can kind of share my own experience. When I first went to Lawrenceburg, uh, the congregation there, they were very, very kind and generous. And they said, you know, we want you to be here for three years. And they even told me, they said, if you hate it here in a year, we won't have hard feelings if you leave. But we're going to commit that we're not going to pull the rug out from under you. So we're going to be with you for at least three years. Um, three years came up and it came up very quickly and some people in the congregation said hey is Nate leaving or you know what I don't think that was anticipatory I, I hope not um, but and so they said what do we do and we said well I guess let's do another three years and then most recently we've appointed elders and I've spoken with the elders and at this point instead of going through this process every three years they've said we value the work you're doing um, we've been able to meet one of the goals that was work towards elders but there's more work to be done and that they see valuable to have me do. And so at this point, they're very open-ended about you're going to work as an evangelist. And that works for them and that works for me. Now, for other congregations, and now here's the thing that goes with that. Obviously, if I start doing something inappropriate, they have every right to say, we're done. If the congregation starts going away that 
I feel is inappropriate and my leadership for my aspect of it isn't able to get them back on track, I have every right to say, I can't be a part of this and we can part ways. Or if I decide sometime down the road or they decide, hey, you know, we don't have the financial means, whatever, it can change. We all know that. But right now that's where we're at. Now, other congregations, but, and part of the reason we're at that point, though, is we've now spent six years together, and we trust one another. Brand new man, um, which this brings up another question, I guess. You know, a lot of times we're calling some guy that we don't know. He's had a meeting, and that's how I started, so I can't really speak against it. But we're calling a guy we don't know, and so that's why we feel we need to maybe say, okay, we're going to give this X amount of time and then reevaluate. What if instead we started training men to be church leaders? We trained men to be teachers. We trained men to be faithful. And then when a congregation saw an opportunity that could use an evangelist, we said to a young man in the congregation who's been working, all right, now it's time for you to do this job. And we know you and we trust you. And so you're going to do this job. And maybe that's a specific job. Maybe it's going overseas for a a, a specific time. Maybe it's working with the congregation. But that trust is already built in. So I think there... I guess that's the only word of wisdom I have, is there has to be trust. Until there's that trust, maybe there needs to be some mutual agreement. But I would hope... I mean, we we don't see a lot of written contracts in the New Testament. You know, preachers, teachers, apostles. Um, It always makes me think of like free agency. Like that preacher's free agency year's coming up. Let's all try and go get him. Uh, just not what to me seems like preaching. Um, it's a relationship and a work that we should work together at. I'm not going to ask what you think I'm going to ask. <laughs> Good. <laughs> no, it, I just want clarification on appointment. Uh, we talked about, or Ron talked about laying on of hands as identification. Um, and I think we would probably say identification is important for elders and deacons because the congregation needs to recognize uh, that they have those roles. Uh, it seems to me you're saying it's not important for an evangelist, and maybe you just need to clarify that. Uh, I, I tend to lean towards it is just as important for an evangelist as an elder and a deacon for them to be publicly recognized. So... I believe appointment is important um, because we don't want confusion. But I don't see a mandate that requires something specific. Um, For example, like the last question here might help illustrate this. Um, We won't talk about meetings, but should a congregation perform an appointment every time a man travels overseas? If they want to, they certainly can. There's nothing wrong with doing what Acts 13 did and... Maybe they, have, they pray, they fast, they lay their hands on, they say, we're sending you to this country. I don't know how many of our brethren that have traveled overseas have had that happen. Um, I never have. But I also believe that when I go to the elders and say, there's this work I've been asked to be a part of by someone else, or that I see a need, or that they have, would you be in favor of me going to the UK on this trip? And they say, yes, we think that would be a good thing. And they provide the funding to do that. I feel like they've acknowledged and appointed, and we communicate it with the congregation. It's not like we're trying to hide anything. They, they, there's communication. I feel like they've appointed me to go do that work. I don't feel like we have to have a special service or to, to do that, to ordain that trip, to appoint that trip. 
So when it comes to a man work is an advantage. Is it? And I, don't get me wrong. I'm not against appointments and ordin, you know services and let's appoint this man. That's all fine. I do want to be careful about saying that has to happen. Or there's probably a lot of evangelists in this room that have never been appointed, or like me, have been appointed by a congregation that's no longer in existence. And I certainly wouldn't want to cast doubt on them saying, well, you're actually not an evangelist, and what you're doing is wrong, because you've never had a formal appointment. Is it good? Is it wise? Absolutely. Um, But also, let's not demand something that Scripture doesn't demand. Years ago, I did a California directory and two congregations sent in the same family. And the fellow called me. He said, you've got me in two congregations. I said, yeah. Uh, did I make a mistake with one? He said, no, you made a mistake with both. He said, I really want you to add a section at the back called members at large. <laughs> and uh, he said, that's, that's where I want to be. I want to be a member at large. Well, in the New Testament, there's always a reporting responsibility for every Christian. Every Christian has a reporting responsibility to a congregation's leadership. And there is no leadership above that of a congregation's leadership. So anytime we have a preacher who says, I report to nobody, it's just as bad as that member who told me I want to be a member at large. So the question becomes, if somebody approached us today and said, We believe you're preaching false doctrine like the people in Acts 15. Who recommends you to the brotherhood? Who has sent you out? What form that that question takes is up to the people, but where are you from? Who sends you out? Is this what you preach at home? Where is home? And if we say as preachers, oh, I'm a preacher at large. I don't answer to anybody. There is a man that needs to be set down permanently until he learns better. Because we all have a reporting responsibility and nobody has the right to be a renegade preacher. And when somebody bounces from congregation to congregation, from state to state, and they still say, I'm your preacher, we're left helpless many times. Say, how do we stop this? And what do we do? In Acts 15, Paul went to Jerusalem And said, fellows, did you do this? This was a matter of whether or not congregations were going to cooperate and Christians were going to be fellowshipped. This is very important. And so whether or not we officially ordain, we still have an official recognition of responsibility process that we have to honor. Everyone has to honor. Thank you, Nate. Very very good. So uh, we're going to take a break and we'll be...